All right. I'm going to get going, going to get going. So make your way in as soon as you can. I missed you, man. I've been praying for you. I thought you got raptured. <laughs> he walked with the Lord and was no more. <laughs> You're like Enoch, you know, like your righteousness exceeded all of us. And so, you know, I'm just joking. I'm totally joking with you. <laughs> it's good to see you, man. All right. So we're doing, uh, we're doing a series. We're in a series um, on doctrine, right? So say with me, doctrine is what the Bible teaches. Dogma is man's opinion about what the Bible teaches. So there's doctrine, what the Bible actually teaches, and then there's dogmas, which are people's opinions about what the Bible teaches. So the Bible's an interesting book. It, it's the only book that interprets itself. If you want, you're ever confused about a scripture, say this with me. Scripture, come on, scripture always interprets scripture, always. There's no book like the Bible. The Bible always interprets itself. And so doctrine is formed by creating a, um, uh, a linear understanding of a topic from front to back. And so if you really want to know what sound doctrine looks like, you'll find it in, in the old and in the new. There will be a consistent theme in the old and in the new. And you take all of the scriptures on the subject and you compare the scriptures with scripture and you come up with the understanding of what the scriptures actually say. I'm on Carmen's mic. Carmen's mic. I feel like I'm swimming in the room. It's like I'm, I'm like on a, I'm like I'm on a cloud. <laughs> we all need this microphone. We should talk to each other all like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in a strange mood today, but it's all right. Jesus likes it eclectic. That's right. So we're going to talk about baptism. All right. So say this with me. We're talking about the Old Testament. And we're talking about the New Testament. So baptism isn't this New Testament thing that just kind of showed up on the scene. Just like communion isn't this New Testament thing that just kind of showed up on the scene. Jesus is, say this with me, Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament, but he is revealed in the New Testament. And so let's say this, what is concealed, say this, what is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New the Old Testament is types and shadows, okay? And so the types and shadows, the representations of things to come. First Corinthians 10 says this, speaking of the Old Testament, all of these things happen to them, the people in the Old Testament, as examples. So we're supposed to look at the Old Testament and we're supposed to learn from it, right? Good idea, bad idea. Good decision, bad decision. Do this, definitely don't do that. So the Old Testament, this is what happens when you do this, Right? My favorite story is one of the favorite stories of uh, Samson, the womanizer, Samson. He was a ladies' man, right? Didn't end well. Did not end well. <laughs> Lord tells him not to do it, and he's like, nah, I got a better idea. I have seen a woman of the Philistines, and she pleases me. I love it. First words out of that guy's mouth. First words. First words Samson ever utters in the Bible. Now, if you want to be quoted in the scripture as saying something, that's probably not the first words you want to be known for. 
Samson, what do you think? I have seen a woman of the Philistines, and she pleases me. <laughs> She's a woman of the world, basically. She wasn't any, there was no virtue. He, he, he liked the wayward women, and the wayward women, he was wayward in his own heart. So everything that happened in the Old Testament happened is, is done to us as an example, as an admonition to us upon whom all of the edge of the ages has come. There's not going to be another age beyond the church age. I don't know if you know that until the millennial comes when the epoch, the final epic time of the world itself. There's been many epochs of time that have transpired in the Bible, but the scripture tells us this is the final epoch of time before Christ comes. This is the church age, the epoch of the church, the epoch of grace. When the next epoch that comes, when the timetable changes, it will be the coming of Jesus himself and the kingdom upon the earth. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So uh, baptism began just like communion began in, uh, in, in the Exodus. So Exodus, there's types and shadows. So if you want to kind of understand this, I'm going to do this really generically because I don't have a lot of time to lay it all out. But we've laid this out many times before. Egypt is a type of uh, Egypt is a type of bondage and a type of sin. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. Israel is basically a mirror of mankind being trapped under bondage and sin and, and under a, uh, the lordship of a demigod uh, named Satan. So, okay, that's the idea. God brought them out of sin and out of the bondage of the Pharaoh by what? Anybody? Two things by blood, right? Come on, All right, you guys are know you're going to say Jesus. Yes, great answer. Jesus is always the answer. So he brought them out by blood and he brought them out by water. Okay? They had to apply the doorposts upon, they had to apply the door, the blood to the door of their life. So they were brought out of sin by the blood. The blood gave them the life and the freedom from sin. And the water gave them the separation from their enemies or the separation from the worldly culture. This is the first type of baptism. So we had to eat the bread of the lamb. So we talked last week about communion. When they were brought out, the, the Passover, they had to eat the bread. They had to eat the lamb with bread, right? They had the blood on the doorposts, and they had to eat the lamb and consume it with bread of haste. This is the idea of communion, bread and blood, right? Jesus is the bread. He's, he's the bread of life. He's the lamb of God, and it's his blood that brings us out. In, 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 when they brought them out of Egypt, it says, The Lord brings them out of Egypt with a, with, an, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror, signs and wonders. He's brought us out of that place and into this place. So it was no small thing for God to bring the people out of Egypt. It was no small thing for, to bring you out of bondage, out of, in, out of enslavement of a fallen angel, which is essentially where all of mankind lies apart from Christ. You're under the dominion of, of darkness. You're outside of the covenant, outside of the kingdom of God, and you're under the sway of the evil one. That's what the scripture tells us. This nation that was brought out, so God brings these people down into Egypt. They form into a nation, and when the time was right, in the fullness of time, he brought them out of, out of Egypt, and they were born by blood and water. And by blood and water. How are babies born? A lot of pain, right? Blood and water. A lot of, uh, a lot of effort, a lot of strain, a lot of pressure. Blood and water. <laughs> That's how we're born again, by blood and water. And Jesus' side was pierced. What came out of his side? Blood and water. Born again. The womb of Adam. Jesus being the last Adam. The womb of Adam being opened again, that mankind could be born again. That's the idea. We're born by blood and by water. 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. I'm trying to show you that baptism didn't begin in the New Testament. This isn't some New Testament idea. Our ancestors were all under the, were, were baptized. 
Our ancestors were all under the cloud and they were all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So that it was by the presence of God and by the passing through of the water. Baptism begins in the Old Testament as a cleansing ritual that accompanies salvation. This is going to bother some of you. If you're a oneness Pentecostal, I make no apologies to you. Oneness Pentecostals say if you're not baptized, you're not saved. You know, that's, what they, that's basically what they say. But that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Say this with me. Baptism does not save you. The blood of Jesus saves you. The confession of faith saves you. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That's what it tells us. Baptism is an accompaniment to salvation, but baptism does not save you. It does not. It was the blood that made them free, and it was the water that separated them. They were free. When they passed out of Egypt, the blood of the Lamb brought them out of Egypt. And then when they came out of Egypt, the water separated them from the culture that they were following. That's essentially what Christian baptism is. You are now dead to yourself. You are dead to this culture, and you're alive to Christ. You're going into the water, immersed into the water, and your life is now over. The culture that you've now lived in is now ended to you, and you awaken and arise new in a testimony, and you're part of a different world and a different environment. That's the idea. They pass through the water, leaving behind the old and entering into the new. Christians need to understand this. We think it's just some kind of little sprinkling thing. Dude, when you get baptized, you are transformed. You are no longer in this world. You are no longer part of the culture. No longer. This isn't just some little, let, you know, dunk me in the water thing. This is literally a testament that I'm leaving the world behind me. That's, that's what it is. All is, all is gone, all is new. I'm born again, but I'm making a public. You can be a carnal Christian, lots of them. Carnal believers all day long, right? So they're born again believers, but they live no differently than the world. I'm not talking about your dysfunctions. We all have dysfunctions. Your dysfunctions are, don't necessarily mean carnality. I'm talking about having an attitude and a mindset that is no different than the world around you. That's, that's what the scripture is saying. Do you think like the world or do we think like the kingdom? I talk to people all the time. My job is to merely counsel them into the counsel of the Lord. You can do what you want. It's really hard. It's interesting to me. A lot of times spirit-filled believers, they cannot dissociate earthly thinking from heavenly mind. They just can't. They have a hard time because it's so common and it's so natural to us to think like men. We, it's so easy. Well, that's just, just the way it should be. This is just the way it should be. Yeah, but that's not what God says. That's the problem. Well, I heard the Lord and the Lord told me to do this. Well, here's a verse that says that's not what he wants you to do. <laughs> I'm all into hearing the Lord so long as it coincides with his word. If you're hearing a word that doesn't coincide with his word, it's not the Lord. <laughs> it might be the pizza. It might be lots of things. It might be the devil himself. But, you, you know, you're not hearing Jesus. You're not hearing him. We are born into another world. We are no longer part of this culture. So this is a birth process, and just like a baby who was born again by the Spirit, but now we're born through the water, we have to learn a new way of living. When you become a Christian, you don't live the old way. You know, it's not, it's not you know, I'm a Christian now, the insurance policy signed, off I go. If you're born again and you live that way, the Bible has a word, it's called carnal. You're a flesh-driven believer. There are lots of them. Lots of them. We're, we are to be differentiated. The Christian is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We're to be entirely different. The Bible calls us a new creation. There should be no one like you on the earth. You literally should be an enigma. People should look at you and go, why do you do that? 
Why do you show up to work on time? Nobody else does. Why do you do your job? The company's not paying you for that. Because I work under the Lord. Why do you not have sex with anybody beyond your wife? Why do you do that? Why are you not promiscuous and running around and spreading the love all over town just like all the other guys? The way we handle sex, the way we handle money, the way we handle our marriages, the way we handle relationships, the way we handle our faith. Sunday morning's a testimony. Why do you go to church on Sunday? That's so stupid. Don't you have a boat to wax? Don't you have grass to cut? Why, why do you do that? Do you realize what you're giving up? Your laundry's piling up. Yep, my laundry's piling up, but Jesus comes before my laundry. I hate to tell you that. He comes before the mopping of the floors. I get it. I live, I live domestically. Right? I understand domestic chores and challenges. I, I understand all of that. But when we come in that, it, it makes a test. It's a t- you're coming to church on Sunday is an open testimony before heaven and earth. If nobody else sees it, Jesus sees it. He sees where the priority of your heart lies. You think he doesn't see and you think he doesn't care. You, know, you do not know him. You do not know him. He sees. Elroy, the Lord who sees. <laughs> Can I use your story? Can I use your mom? I'm not going to get into the details of your mom. But, right, um, so here's the thing. Uh, Raul asked me to call his mom and do inner healing with his mom on the phone. So I, I did. This is the second time I called her and did some inner healing with her. And I was telling Raul yesterday, I'm thinking, why, Lord, am I calling a woman in California? And, and it's not because it's like, it's like Raul, I get it. It's Raul's mom. Hey, Raul's here. I love Raul. Raul's my brother. You know, you no know, problem. I'll serve him. I get that. But I, f- I kept feeling like there was some other reason beyond Raul why I'm calling her. And I could just feel it. And I'm asking the Lord, I'm like, why am I calling this woman in California? And so I was like, oh, that's crazy. But no, nonetheless, I'll do what you ask me. And so I'm, I'm, sir, I'm doing all this. And, and I, his mom's name is Evangelina. And so I say, Evangelina, do you know that Jesus loves you? And she goes, oh, I love him so much. He's so important to me. I pray to him all of the time. I just so much. I love him. I do anything for Jesus. She starts just billowing out these accolades of love towards the Lord. And in that moment, I felt like this is why I'm calling a woman in California who is struggling with some deep things. This is why. Because the God of heaven sees the love that this woman has for her. And he sees and he says, this daughter will know freedom in this life. So I felt like he told me this daughter. I want this daughter who loves me so greatly to not know just freedom in the life to come. She will taste my freedom in this world. She will know that the God of heaven sees her and she will know that the God of heaven loves her. If you don't think the Lord sees, you're crazy. If you don't think he sees the desires and the intents and the motives of your heart, you're crazy. He sees it all for good and bad. So some of you are very honest and loving and sincere and you think the Lord doesn't see. Who told you that? Some of you, you try to skip, you know, you try to skip, you know, you do the minimum and you think Jesus doesn't see. Oh, you know the game. You know how to talk. You know how to dress. You know how to act. You got all the Christian language down. And if we put you in a circle, you'd fool us all. And that's great. I don't really care. In that regard, I mean, but the Lord sees. If you think God doesn't see that, he sees it. He sees when you're skipping, you know, and the intent. Look, we all have our, we all, we're humans. But if that is the pattern of your life, he sees. What he's looking at is the pattern of your life. Jesus isn't looking at perfection. Say it with me. Jesus does not care. Oh, I'm going to offend some holiness people on this one. Jesus does not care about perfection. He cares about direction. 
you're, there's, you're not going to be perfect. So I, there's only one perfect one. His name's Jesus. You're not going to be holy. There's only one holy one and his name's Jesus. You can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. You can't. So all the holiness doctrines, and I've been around it for a long time. I was part of it, and it was like a, an ethos within a church I grew up with. It was always this holiness, 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 this externals, this constant self-management. And what I realized, I can't self-manage. I can't do it. Oh, we play like we can, but we really can Anybody who tries to tell you they can self-manage and that they have holiness down, they're liars. Self-righteous, arrogant, bound by religious spirits. That's who they are. True. Honesty says, I can't manage this. And I would tell the Lord, there's no holy. I can't be holy. I'm born again. I see your spirits in me, but I can't do this. And you know what you tell me? Kevin, there's no holiness without the Holy Spirit. That's why I tell you. I tell you what he told me. There's no holiness without the Holy Spirit. You can be holy. When you're in the Holy Spirit, you're holy. I'm holy. Wow, I feel so good. I'm clean. Everything's great. Monday morning wakes up. You're not in the Spirit anymore. You're like, what? Who am I? What am I? Where'd that go? (laughs) There's only one perfect. God sees you. He knows you. He sees you when no one else is looking. He sees you when no one else cares. He knows. He knows. He sees the cry of your heart. He sees the desire of your heart. I'll give you another one. Can I just give you another one? I'll give you another one. It's related to this. Trust me. A lot of people, and this is, this is elevate. So this, this right here is what I care about. I care about what God is doing in the lives in your lives and what God is doing in the overall mission of this church. Many of you, this is a challenge for you in the year 2020. You have been praying and you have been asking God and you have been seeking the Lord for specific things that you have, you want. And it is God's intention to give them to you. In fact, God is actually constructing them as we speak. The Lord is moving on behalf to bring you into a position to give you what you want. But so often what happens is God begins this redemptive process or this reconstruction process to bring you out of darkness, out of the poverty, out of the darkness, out of the despair, out of the stupidity, wherever it is. He's working to bring you out of that. And what happens is, is that Christians make earthly decisions that shortchanges the ability of God to perform what he wants to perform in your life. You make a stupid decision knowingly against knowledge, and you give an enemy a right now to hold something against you, and you know, you don't have any idea. God's not holding anything back. Well, it's because of this. No, you just gave the devil a right. Jesus isn't holding anything back. The devil takes the law of the Lord and holds it up. I have the right to afflict. I have the right to withhold. He did this. Your word says this. Therefore, I invoke this against him. And you don't even know it. Because you make an earthly decision. Because you're walking in carnality. And you're doing I've seen it time and again. Time and again. Counseling people saying, this is not what God wants you to do. Well, I'll pray about that. I'm like, let's not pray about that. Let me, let me, can I read it for you? It's spelled out in black and white. This isn't, there's a lot of maybes in the scripture. There's a lot of, in the scripture, it's like, as the Lord leads you, as the wisdom, as the wisdom prevails, there's a lot of things that, that are gray matter to us that we can, we have a lot of room to decide. It doesn't matter to the Lord. There's lots of areas where God just sends us in a direction. And he said, it doesn't matter. You'll win no matter what doesn't matter what you do. You're in the right direction. So if you, if whatever decision you make in this direction, you will win. He gives us that. There's a lot of latitude, but there's other things in the Bible where he specifically says, do not do that. Or he'll say, you need to do this. Well, I need to pray about that brother. 
Really? When it says literally what you just told me and it says right here, let no man, you know what? I'm paraphrasing. I don't want to quote the verse that I gave him, but like, let no person do this thing. It just said it, whatever. I'm not quoting a specific verse, but he says they did basically give straight instruction. And the response is, well, I need to pray about that. I'll have to pray about that, brother. See what the Lord tells me. He's speaking, baby. He's speaking. It's crazy. What you need to do this year needs to be a year where you're going to go full obedience. It doesn't matter what it costs you. It doesn't matter how much time it doesn't cost you. It doesn't matter how much money. It doesn't matter how much blood. It doesn't matter how much breath it takes. You are going to make the necessary offering, the necessary sacrifices, and the necessary commitments to rise to the level of your birth. That's the way you have to be in this year. Many times Christians, would they pray, God starts constructing, and then they act like the devil, and the enemy grabs a right over their life and forbids them. And then they go, oh, I prayed, and God never gave it to me. He didn't give me what I asked him for. He now, I've been praying, I've been believing God for this, and the opportunity came, but then it went away. And I'm like, kind of like going, well, what, what negative decision, what right does the enemy already possess? Let's find that out. And if there's no rights that he possesses that forbids you from this, then let's find out what you did along the way that gave him access to forbid that from you. Jesus Jesus forbids nothing from you. He, the devil's a liar. He's the one who claims the right over you. And he's the one. And then he, while he's claiming rights over you, he blames God. He holds rights over you. You believe lies. He sows lies in your heart. Listen, I've had a lot of things. I had a very, not a healthy experience happen this week. And while I'm in a car, I'm driving down a car, down the road. And I've done a lot of this stuff on myself. I, I start hearing the Lord going, I, I start hearing the devil. I just hear, I told Sherry, I heard this voice go. The Holy Spirit didn't do what he said. I'm, I'm, I'm making it more sinister than it was because the devil doesn't go, the Holy Spirit. He goes like, he talks to, you know who he talks to you like? He talks to you like you. The devil doesn't talk to you like the devil. He speaks to you in your own voice to make you, under, make you think that you're the one who's talking to you. That's how he does. He says, the Holy Spirit, is, this Holy Spirit isn't good to you. Or he says, the Holy Spirit didn't do what he told you he was going to do. And God's not good to you. I told Sherry I was driving in a car and I thought about that for a second. That goes, I don't have time for this nonsense. That's a complete lie. <laughs> Why? Because I've been trained, conditioned, and healed to know different. Most people cannot get past it. That lie is spoken to them and they're hooked by the lie. And they go right into it. Not knowing who they are. Not knowing that they're loved. Not knowing, that, not knowing God's nature. It's an It's an epidemic. It's, it's, it's ongoing. We're supposed, it's like last week, right? Talk about this. Jesus looks at them. They're grumbling amongst themselves because he said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Remember that, right? The context of the verse is that a father instructing a children, a children. And he says, stop grumbling among yourselves. If you read it in the Greek, he goes, babies, infants, stop grumbling among yourselves. He said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. That's what he says. I'm not telling you to chew on my arm. And pump a blood out of me with an IV. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking to you spiritually. But you're too dull to understand what it is I'm talking to you about. This is a generation and a culture that was supposed to be trained and raised in the scripture and the things of God. Yet here they are in full maturity, in quote unquote, in their mind, full maturity. And they don't understand a basic thing. You know, it says a couple of things to us. Number one, Jesus expects us to know. Well, that's your job, pastor. Your job is to know. That's not my job. I'm not the only one here that's required to know. 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to train the people to do the work of the ministry. If you really want to get, really want to get down on it, the work of the ministry is not the pastor's role. The training and the equipping is the pastor's role. The work of the ministry is all y'all. All y'all. It's a body moving in motion. Israel's blood made them free. It was the water that separated them. Matthew 28, go into all the world, baptize them. That's the command. Jesus commands us that as disciples, we're to be baptized. We're not just to believe, we're to be baptized. Mark clarifies the same verse, but he goes a little, he, he gives us another window into it. He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creatures. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Condemnation does not come from not being baptized. Condemnation comes from not believing. It doesn't say whoever doesn't believe and whoever isn't baptized. That's not what it says. The belief is that the failure to convert unto Christ is where the condemnation lies, not in baptism. But we're all supposed to be baptized. Okay, so I want to make that clear. There's this big idea that like, well, I got to believe and I got to get baptized. I got to believe and I got to get baptized. I got to get baptized. You need to get baptized. We have a baptism sign up over there. You need to be baptized 100%. But baptism doesn't save you. It's important to know that. Baptism is a command. It is an act separate from salvation. It's entirely separate. You can get saved and be baptized. Hey, I want to confess Jesus while I go into the water. Great. I want to confess Jesus while I take communion. Great. But it's not. But the act of communion doesn't save you, nor does the act of salvation save you. The conversion of the heart is what saves you. Right. It's the conversion of the heart, not the mind, the heart born again. Wow. I love it. Don't you love it, man? We need to go back and just remember what it was like when we were born again. Remember that? Can we live from that place? Like, wow. When you're born again, (laughs) nobody could take that smile off of your face, right? You were singing and you didn't know why, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you're born again, you're just like, wow, this is crazy. That's what we're supposed to. We're supposed to live from that place. So here's a question. Jesus was baptized. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, is he's the prototype of the new creation. We are followers of Christ. He's doing several things. Number one, he's fulfilling. He's following literally the footsteps of the exodus. Out of Egypt, he came just like Israel came out of Egypt, right? He went 40 days in the wilderness, just like Moses went 40 days on the mountain. Now, all of these things are a prototype. They're a mirroring back and a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But at the same time, he's mirroring to us what it looks like to operate as a new creation. Jesus didn't get, get baptized because God needed to be baptized. God didn't need to be baptized. Jesus became a man to mirror to us the way of the new creation, the son of man. So as a mirror, he does this to fulfill all righteousness. It was right before the Trinity. He's fulfilling the mirror. It's called a mikvah. At Passover, they would have mikvahs. So on the way to Jerusalem, beautiful story. I mean, you think about how the Lord did this. It's not the way they operated on it. It's like anything. God comes and unleashes freedom and we create a religion, right? He releases joy and oh man, we better take the, we better take that lollipop out of your hand, man. There's no, there's no fun in this, right? So God creates this system where they were supposed to go to Jerusalem. The male of every family was to travel to Jerusalem. The whole family was invited to come during Passover. Typically, they stayed in Jerusalem for two months because the males were supposed to appear at three specific feasts. 
They were all males of all households, and those feasts occurred over 50 days. So typically, families would travel to Jerusalem and stay in Jerusalem for two months because the feasts were taking place over this time. So they, the male had to be present. All, if you were a male representative of your household, you had to go. The mom could stay home if she had small children or if there was something that prevented them from traveling. She was permitted. But the influencer or the directional leader, if you will, women lead too, but men are commanded to be the directional leader, for better or worse, was commanded to be and come up to Jerusalem. And so God would tell them to come up to Jerusalem. They would go to Jerusalem for Passover. They were required to appear at Passover. They were required to appear at first fruits, which was three days later. And they were required to appear at um, at uh, Pentecost. And they had to be in Jerusalem in order for this to happen. Why? Because Jesus was going to be crucified at Passover in Jerusalem. And so every male household would be there in Jerusalem going, wow, did you see that? So Jesus would be known throughout the world, whether they believed him or whether they didn't. They would know that a Jewish prophet was crucified by Roman centurions on a cross at Calvary on Golgotha outside of the city. This was no, that was no ordinary Passover. They would know, because they would be there that week, that on the third day, on the feast of firstfruits, the very day of firstfruits, the firstfruits of the resurrection from the dead would rise, and they would know, whoa, that dude that was crucified at Passover, they say he's alive. This is crazy. And they still haven't even gone home yet. They would be there for another 40 days, right, until Pentecost. And then on Pentecost, same year, rushing wind blows through the temple, and lots of shikamoshai going on. Right? They were coming out of the temple. All of the males were coming out of the temple. And Peter and the boys were bursting it out. Speaking in tongues. These men are not drunk as you suppose, men of Israel. This wasn't a small gathering. There were thousands that were there. Thousands converted that day. That's why God required every male to be there. Because he said, I'm going to do something. And you're going to witness it. I'm going to show you who I am and I'm going to show you what I've promised. And I want every male. So he'd come home and he'd going to go, honey, you would not believe this. This was the craziest year we ever had. <laughs> but what was crazy. So they would have these trails that would go to Jerusalem. There was two ways to get to Jerusalem. You could go the King's highway, which was, I don't, I can't know which was okay. Let's just say Jerusalem's here. And the ocean, the sea is over here. So here's Jerusalem. You could go the King's Highway, which was out this way. I can't know if it's east or west. But the King's Highway would go here. Or you could get to Jerusalem by a way called the Way of the Sea. There were two main roads, if you were coming south into Israel, that led to Jerusalem. The King's Highway, built by David, and there, was be the, there would be the Way of the Sea. Those are the only two ways. You couldn't get to Jerusalem through the interior. You had to go around the outsides, but it would lead. And but when you, both of those roads would converge before they went to Jerusalem. So you'd have, pil- you'd have uh, pilgrims coming down the king's highway and you'd have pilgrims coming up the way of the sea and they would be meeting at this joining road and they would begin it was called an ascent they would have to ascend into jerusalem and they would begin as soon as the ascent began they would begin to sing songs can you imagine tens of thousands of people going up to Jerusalem, singing the psalms specific series of psalms and they were called the psalms of ascent And they would be singing it in the round. The priests would come out from Jerusalem and meet them on the way. And the priests would lead them into the city, leading them in choruses of songs. Can you imagine? The whole city, Jerusalem was was made out of limestone, white limestone. So it looks celestial. 
It looked as if the city was floating. And here you are going up to the mountain and going into Jerusalem. And you're here, all you're hearing is, who is this king of glory? And the people would, would sing back, the Lord mighty in battle. They would sing the songs of the scent in the round. It's called singing in the round. So the chorus would be led this way and the people would respond. The chorus would be led this way and the people would respond. And then they would sing all the songs together going up into Jerusalem. Is that crazy? It, was no, it wasn't an ordinary pilgrimage. And you wonder, the Bible says that people came from the world over just to witness the spectacle at Passover. Just to witness it. What were they witnessing? They were like, we've never seen anything like this before. They would just go and hang out. The Gentiles, would, the non-believers would just go and watch it. No particular reason. They just thought it was cool. Right? And it was cool. But on the way to Jerusalem, there would be mikvah baths. There would literally be baptismal tanks. And the Jews would be baptized. They would be baptized twice. They'd be baptized for purification going unto Jerusalem. And they would be baptized for rededication going away from Jerusalem. So anyways, as you're traveling down the road, there would be these stations, kind of like rest stops. And you could go and get a mikvah, which is an immersion. You go get your little immersion because you want to be spare, you want to be ceremonially clean because you're going to Jerusalem. So they'd be baptized on the way to Jerusalem. And then when they, after the Passover feast, they would go home and they would be baptized on the way back from Jerusalem. Crazy. Representative again of the Passover when they pass through the seas. Baptism isn't some new thing that Christians do. We've iconized it as if like, we're going to sprinkle you. <laughs> Or a little dab on the head, you know, kind of thing. They were immersed, dunked. That's what the word baptism means, immersed. And there's all kinds of context behind this. We're immersed into Jesus. Did you know that? You're not immersed into water. You're immersed into him. Just think about that for a minute. Think about being underwater and swimming underwater. Now let's think about this. Being in the presence of the Lord and swimming within his presence. Think about that. That's what he's talking about. The baptism is symbolic of immersion. There's more layers to this immersion than just merely going into the water. It is, the, it is exactly what he did. And he did the same thing with the people of Israel. The immersions that we understand that God was doing is exactly the same thing he was trying to do. Ready? He was trying to do it with Israel, but they resisted him at every turn. The church does the same thing. You know, but God's a little more gracious now because <laughs> the blood's been shed. Nonetheless, that's another story. But every time God was trying to do something for them, they would resist him. He was immersing them. So we get baptized. We are immersed into Jesus. What does that mean? You can swim in the spirit of God. You can immerse yourself in the Holy Spirit and begin to move in a world that's unknown to you. That's why it's underwater. Everything the gospel relates to things that are underwater. Fishers of men, is that above water or is that underwater? You're pulling something from another world. That's the idea. We are fishers of men because the power that we have is to draw from another world. That's the power the church has. We're immersed in water because Jesus is trying to mirror to those who have ears to hear, to those that aren't like, duh, which is most of people. I call it Christian dumb. We should be the smartest, most intellectual, and most spiritually alive people on the planet. That's what the church was designed to be. The light of the world, the salt of the earth, the best of all mankind reflected through the kingdom on the earth through the church. So we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be stupid about this stuff, but we are. And I don't speak to the crowd. I speak to fellow leaders. It's like we, we're like, like, dude, these are, these are not marbles we're playing with here. These are very deep truths. 
very profound truths. The immersion into the spirit tells us that we are immersed into a world that is unknown to us. That's why most people avoid the spirit world. That's why they most, most people avoid like even entering into the spirit because it's not familiar to them. You choose the familiar over the unfamiliar. When you learn to swim and move in the spirit, it's like no other place in the world. You don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. You might know what I'm talking about. When you go deep and you start moving in the spirit, and you start going into that world and start moving in that world and going out into the deep end and start moving with it. You're like, whoa, this is crazy. And people, Christians avoid it because it's not familiar. Remember when you were a kid, you'd dive down in the pool and you'd get scared, right? Anybody go snorkeling? Some of you refuse to go snorkeling because you get freaked out, right? You know what I'm saying? You go down to the reef and you're like, whoa, this is crazy. I don't know. I'm going back to the boat. I'm going back to the boat. It's the same idea. That's why he uses water so that we can relate to it. We're immersed into Christ. We can swim in Jesus. Literally going into the presence of who he is, you can swim within the heart of the living God. Did you know that? Why do you worship a far off Christian when the blood of Jesus has been shed to bring you near? Why do you, why do you neglect what is yours by right of inheritance? There's no born again believer that has forbidden the right into the spirit. None. You can go into the spirit anytime you want. Anytime you want. Most don't because it's not complete. It's not familiar to them or they have some crazy teacher trying to tell them, well, we don't do into that. We stay right here with the word of God, with the word of God. We don't need an experience beyond the word of God. I was just telling Sherry this this morning. I was just reading this guy and he's saying the Christian does not need an experience beyond the word of God. I say this. It's not an experience beyond the word of God. It's an experience into the word of God. That's not, it's not, it's not, it's not Gnosticism where we're, you know, we have a knowledge that's beyond the word of God. We have a knowledge that's within the word of God. The experience in the encounter makes the word alive. You understand that? When you go into the prophetic and you're into the world and you give a word of knowledge or you, somebody gives you a word of knowledge and it hits you, it, the word becomes alive. Things become alive to you. Life become, life begins to move. You're worshiping and God's showing you something and things are just, you're just moving in this place. It's like the presence of God becomes real. He's not a God who's afar off. He's a God who's near. So when people talk to you about experience and you ever, and you ever hear this, which my well-minded theological brothers would say, we don't need an experience beyond the word of God, brother. Everything that is known is known and locked in the canonical scriptures. We don't need an experience beyond the word of God. My dude, who's having an experience beyond the word of God? I'm having an experience in the word of God. I was just telling Sherry this on the car. I said, read the book of Revelation. We look at that and we worship that. Do you know what John was seeing? Do you have any idea? This dude was seeing vision after vision after vision after vision with no context for what he was seeing. Yet we accept that and say that's the word of God. He was in, a, he was in another world. I see a woman rising up with stars beneath her feet and the sun's beneath her feet. And she's doing all this. I'm walking over here. Wow, there's the throne of God. Look, at there's a crystal sea. Oh, wow, there's streets of gold, walls of jasper. There's living creatures. No context for what he was saying. The majority of what John was saying, there was no grid. There was no map. It didn't exist. Read Ezekiel. Wheel in the sky. Any journey fans out there? Ezekiel saw the wheel in the sky. Wheel within a wheel. We would never know that God's presence is manifest by a wheel within a wheel had Ezekiel not saw it. 
We accept that as the word of God, but any experience the New Testament church has is counted as, as heresy, which is complete bogus. I mean, you would call Ezekiel in the modern time would be called a heretic. John in the modern time would be called a heretic. I dare say Jesus in a lot of churches would be called a heretic if they didn't know who it was that was manifesting in front of them. Who it was that was bringing something forth in their midst. They wouldn't even recognize him. They'd say, that's demonic. What'd you do if Jesus walked in and started speaking in tongues? What'd you do? Oh, he's a devil. Oh, that guy's a devil. That's Jesus, dude. (laughs) I'm just telling you where we're at. This is where we're at. This is not what God intended, but it is what what we do. Because we, again, it's the carnality. Christianity is spiritual before it's anything. You're born again by what? Spirit, right? Galatians, having begun in the spirit, do you now think you can walk this out in the flesh? That's the word that Paul said to Galatia. But we, the American church seems to think we can. We're born again in the spirit, but by God, we can work this out in the flesh. (laughs) Ten steps to successful Christian living. I'm all in on that. I'm all in on ten steps. I'm all in on practical things. But practicality cannot, cannot usurp spirituality. We are to be trained and accustomed in spiritual things. We're to understand. What did he say to Nicodemus, brothers? What did he say to Nicodemus, sisters? Are you a teacher of God and you don't know this? He was speaking to him not of earthly things. Nicodemus couldn't get his head around the fact that Jesus was telling him to be born again. And what did he say? If I speak to you of what? Heavenly things? The church can't get its head around anything if it's not spoken to them in earthly terms. It's heavenly things. Heavenly places. This is who we are. This is the power of a new generation. Jesus is an experiential God, whether you want him to be or not. The church is freaked out. I mean, we got, we got entire denominations that are built around their, their number. One of, the, one of the tenets of their faith is that God is not experiential. Well, who told you that? Dr. So-and-so at the seminary and theological practices. Um, you know, he told me that. He, that's, that's what I learned. Well, they, they're telling you wrong. That's not, that's not a Bible. We're immersed into Christ. We're immersed into community, immersed into family. Look to your right. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. You can give me one of these. Look to your right and look to your left. Just give me a little look like. There you go. These are your brothers and sisters around here. This is your family. Yes. Your family's not dysfunctional Uncle Billy with a beer can in his hand. That's not your family. <laughs> this is your family. You laugh because it's true. You know, it's like, that's not, this is your family. We are the household of faith. We are born again, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers to one another. We're to help father mature, develop, help mother nurture, develop. And we're also to be brothers and sisters, companions along the way, strengthened by, not by earthly blood, but by the blood of Jesus. We're immersed into family. This is an immersion. We're part of one another. We're members of one another. When you're not here, people notice when, when other people aren't here, you notice, don't you? There's a longing that we have. That's why when we see each other, it's like this glow. We're just like, hey, hey, what's going on? <laughs> you don't know why. Because it's an immersion in the community. We're immersed into a community. That's reality. That is our real reality. Is our reality. We're baptized into a kingdom. It says, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the gospel of the kingdom, Right? Paul didn't, Philip was not preaching. This is a very important dynamic and it needs to be understood. In the New Testament, no one is preaching the gospel of salvation. They are preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Big difference. 
Because it wasn't a moment they were preaching. It was a lifestyle they were preaching. It was a full-on conversion into another life. It wasn't a moment. We preach salvation, the gospel of salvation. It's not in the Bible. Gospel of salvation is not in the Bible. It says this gospel which is unto your salvation. It's the only reference that it makes. Every time the gospel is named, it is, it is referenced as either the gospel generic or it is, in its clearest terms, it is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Well, what is the gospel of the kingdom? Isn't that the question? The king's dominion, the fullness of God's kingdom, ruling and reigning in every sphere of the believer's life. The gospel of the kingdom ruled the fullness of the, king, of the king's dominion in every sphere of a culture, in every sphere of society. This gospel of the blank will be preached in all the world and then the end shall come. So what gospel do we need to preach to all the world? The gospel of the kingdom. The go- this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world and then the end shall come. We think, well, we need, to, we need to preach the gospel of salvation to all the world. No, we need to preach the gospel of the king's dominion. The king's dominion looks like it needs to affect every sphere of your life. The, the, the key areas of your life, your faith, your family, your finances, your future, and your friendships all need to be affected by the gospel of the kingdom. Everything in your life, every choice you make is related through the kingdom. Then your kingdom, your kingdom, you're, you're exceptional among the average. If you can take that, then you begin to walk in that. The gospel of the kingdom tells the Christian, get involved. Ready? Oh, I know this is going to hurt some of you. Get involved in politics because God needs spirit-filled people entering that sphere. He needs godly people on a school board. He needs godly judges that will have the righteousness of God in their mind and not the wickedness of men in their heart when they speak. He needs godly influencers in every sphere, business, education, economic, whatever the sphere of life is. That's the king's dominion. The Christian stepping into a realm of dominion, whatever, whatever job you are, you operate in dominion, spiritual authority. Yes, but you're ruling and reigning and you're bringing the dominion of God into that workplace. There's lots of ways of doing it. The aspirations of our lives are to be for kingdom purposes. We were just talking in a prayer room. I said, I don't want to live 30 years for for 30 years sake. I really don't. Heaven seems like a way better deal to me, but I want to live 30 years. If I can bring the kingdom to the earth, if I can manifest the glory of God in my generation, if I can take what he's invested to me and I can sow it in good field, I'm willing to live. I want to live to be absent from the body. be present with the Lord. Paul says, I'm torn between two things. I'm not like, it's not like I'm dying or something, but I thought about that a lot. Why do, I, why do I want long life? What, for what purpose do I want to live? Why? Well, I just don't want to die. Really? If you're a believer, dying's a really good deal. <laughs> it's a really good deal. You know, if you're in Jesus, all your troubles are gone. You're shedding no tear. You're only crying for the people you left behind. That's it. We live for the kingdom. That's what we're to live for. That's what we do. We live to bring his glory to the earth in every sphere of our life. We're made and created and immersed into a kingdom, Christian. That's what we are. This needs to be acted upon. We're baptized in love. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And be filled with all the fullness there. And that word to know is the word experience. There's one for the non-experiential brothers. To know the word of God. That word know is epignosis. It's knowledge through experience. It's not knowledge through reading. It's knowledge through experience. Jesus says he's a healer, right? Anybody been healed? Raise your hand. Come on. Testify. Okay. You know he's a healer. You don't know he's a healer. You know he's a healer. Big difference. Epignosis. You know him now through experience. That's why experience is important. Anybody ever here given a prophetic word? 
Anybody ever received a prophetic word that was on the mark? And you're just like, whoa. You don't know that God sees you. You know that he sees you because the word has been spoken to you. Dreams and visions that have come to pass. Prayers that have been answered. Prayers in experiential format. You know, if you talk to most of these crazy guys that want to shut down experience, they would never shut down prayer. Yet prayer itself is an experiential format. We pray and we experience God, don't we? If we pray accordingly, if we pray the correct way, heaven moves on our behalf. So prayer itself is experiential. Everything about this God is experiential. He loves you. He wants to move in you. He wants you to feel him. He wants you to be alive in him. He wants to be in you and you in him. He wants to, he, he does not, he does not care about your junk. He doesn't care. He doesn't. See, every time I get close to Jesus, I see my junk. You know why? Because <laughs> he wants to help you with it. When he shows you your junk, Christian, he's not showing you your junk because he's rejecting you. He says, listen, here's some things. All right. This is my wife, right? I've learned much from my wife. Ladies, you should take notes, right? He's had a guy talk to me about marriage. He's like, well, you know, I go, dude, I've been married 30 years and raised two children. I said, there's very little I haven't experienced. (laughs) Not saying I know it all, but I do know quite a bit. The good, the bad, and the ugly. My wife will say, Kevin, these are some things that are getting in the way of our relationship. This is how she's, she, we, we, we now have, we've kind of merged into one mind. So we're kind of at this place. But I remember many stages along the life of our marriage where she would come to me and she'd say, um, okay, so this is what we need to talk about. These are the things that you're doing that are in the way of our relationship. Now, I know I'm doing some things, and I'm open to hear what it is that you feel that I'm doing that's in the way of our relationship, but I want you to know that these are the things that I see with you that are in the way of, 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 of our relationship. Now, does she say that to me because she hates me? Why is she saying that to me? She wants to be closer to me, right? And she's saying, I cannot get closer because of these things. And I want to get closer. So if we get these things out of the way, you and I will be closer. That's why she's saying it. Right? That's what the Lord does with you. It's the same thing. You're close to him and he says to you, Elias, I want to get closer to you, man. I mean, dude, this is awesome. We're close. I feel really close. But look, here's some things that are going on here that are in the way these are lies that you believe. These are dysfunctions in your life. These are inheritances that you have. These are traumas. These are wounds. These are generational things. These are some things that we need to work on in order for me to get closer to you and in order for me to bring destiny into your life. We have to work on these. That's why he's doing it. He's not doing it to go look at you, you loser, you pathetic loser. My wife's not going, you pathetic loser. What kind of man are you? You can't even spend time with your wife. <laughs> It's always time, guys. Time is always one. (laughs) Mark it down. If there's something in the way, it's always time. And not just time, quality time. Staring into my eyes. Listening intently upon everything I'm saying. Wow. You mean when you put the laundry in the washer, the washer didn't work? Yeah. No. You poor thing. We got to fix it. Yeah, right. Exactly. So we're baptized into love. It's the experiential fullness of God. We're baptized into the spirit. My last point, and this is a pretty big one, so I'm hopefully I'm going to close this out here in seven minutes. Spiritual baptism also mirrors the Exodus. I don't know if you're aware of this. There was two baptisms in Exodus. 
They crossed two rivers, or they crossed two seas. They crossed two bodies of water, didn't they? Anybody know? The Red Sea? What was the other one? The Jordan. One was out of a culture and into another culture. The second crossing was into promise. Yeah? Had nothing to do with salvation. Yet God commanded them to cross the body of water. One was led by Moses. Moses had the staff, brought them out. Got, the other one was led by the Ark of the Presence or the Ark of Testimony. Who went into the water first? Priests, right? <laughs> How'd you like to be a priest on that day? They say the river was overflowing its banks. And the river, at that, that time of year, the River Jordan, because now they have a dam, but the, before then, it would, the River Jordan was at its peak, and it would be like white water. And Joshua comes to the priest, and he goes, good news. We're going to the other side today. Right on. So what I need you boys to do, grab the ark, <laughs> you and the other Coheens, and you guys just step into the water, and the water's going to part. We're going to step into the water, step into the water, water's going to part. We're going to step into that water, and the water's going to part. Step into the water, water's going to part. Can you imagine that? Let's just put that in practical terms. Why? Because the Lord said so. All right. Okay. (laughs) Honey, if anything happens to me, I want you to know. (laughs) And what happened? The priest would bear, the priest, the required priest would carry the ark. And the Bible said, as soon as their foot touched the water, the Lord parted it. He parted it. The second into promise was not led by Moses. It was led by the ark. It was led by the presence and the power of God. There are two baptisms in the Bible. And I know this is extraordinarily controversial if you want to get into doctrine. It's Christian doctrine. But I'm teaching you what the Bible says. I don't really care what denominations tell me or what other people tell me. I want to know what Jesus is telling me. That's really all I want to know, truthfully. There's a second experience, just like there was a second experience. Ready? Watch this. Not all of those, did everybody who came out of Egypt go into the promised land? Was it God's will to bring them all into the promised land? But they didn't go, right? Why? Because of themselves, right? Right? So it's God's will to bring every Christian into promise. It's God's will to bring everybody into a fullness of the baptism of the Spirit. That's His will, but not everybody will. Not everybody will. But it's, not, it's no fault of the Lord. We had a woman here saying, well, Kevin, I, I've been to church for eight years, and the church that I go to, they're, they're, you know, they're charismatic, they speak in tongues, and I've never spoken tongues. I said, come to Firestarters, you'll speak in tongues. I said, I guarantee it. I said, You're, if you come two or three times, we don't hit you the first time, two, round two or three, if you want it, it's yours. It's yours by right of inheritance. It's not doled out to special people. Well, Sherry, she's special. She gets to speak in tongues. Sorry, you don't, you know. <laughs> Why? Well, it's the mystery of God. I don't know. It's just the mystery of God. He loves her more than he loves you. I don't know. Maybe there's some sin in your life. That, that stuff has nothing to do with sin. There are things when you get born again that are yours. It's a package deal, right of inheritance. Things come to us as born again believers that are ours as a package deal. It comes with the package. Destiny is not part of that package. But gifts, power, presence, all of that is. Healing, that's all part of the package deal that belongs. Those are rights of inheritance. Whether you achieve your God-given purpose on the earth, that's an entirely different matter. That relates to choices and different things. But as a believer, you could be smoking, drinking, and chewing, and you come here and the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? Because it's yours by right of inheritance. You could be half hungover, never prophesied before, and and you'll prophesy. Because it's not based on your sinfulness, it's based upon His promise to you. That's why grace is amazing. It's true. 
It's true. We want to qualify this as if we qualify for the gifts of the offerings. Jesus gives you the gifts no matter what. It's yours. He just gives it to you. Crazy. He throws you the keys to a Ferrari. I know. You don't even know how to drive. But he's given you a Ferrari. And he said, take this around the block. Okay. <laughs> and the crazy ones that take it around the block actually get somewhere. The fearful ones go, I don't know. It scares me. The motor revs. I don't know. Too many buttons. Too many dials. I don't know. And so you sit there and look at the Ferrari. Others don't even want to look at the Ferrari. They don't want to look at the Holy Spirit. They want to put the Holy Spirit in the garage. Close the door. Act like he doesn't exist. He's a Ferrari, people. He's waiting for you to go for a little tool, a little spin. Two baptisms in Exodus, the crossing of the sea, the crossing of the Jordan. The second baptism was in power. It was in power. They were given power when they went into the promised land. Power to what? To possess the promises. They were given power to drive out their enemies. And they were given power to establish God's purposes in the earth. That's the whole reason for the immersion of the spirit. Here's the argument. Ready? Here's the argument. There's only one baptism spoken of in the Bible, Kevin. One baptism. Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in hope. One faith and one baptism. There it is. There is no baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's one baptism unto, 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 unto the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. The secondary baptism unto powers is entirely different. It's a secondary experience. Those of you who have had the secondary experience, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those that haven't are like, I have no clue. What I tell you is to be, don't be the antagonist, but be the protagonist and go, what, be like a child and go, you know, there's another theme park beyond Mickey Mouse Disneyland. Christians are brought into one theme park and there's another one, right? Like a little kid. If you go, hey, did you know there's an animal kingdom? What? I didn't even, when are we going? Rather an animal kingdom. Who wants to go to an animal kingdom? No kid says that. You need to have childlike faith. When God says there's a secondary experience for you, an experiential encounter that you can have that can baptize you and immerse you in power that you've never had, that's unlike what you've already experienced, doesn't mean you're not saved, but this is a different thing. This is an immersion into a purpose. This is an immersion into power, and it's yours. It's yours. You should be like, really? When are we going? Instead, we're like, who wants that? I don't even think there is an animal kingdom. I don't think that place exists at all. I think you're lying to me, Dad. They shut that down long ago. Who told you that? Acts chapter 19. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You hear they're encountering believers who had not had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, yet they were baptized in John's baptism unto salvation. That's the baptism of the water. Is the baptism where you're born again and you're testifying of the immersion into Christ. That's the baptism these people received. And they said, would you receive the immersion of the Holy Spirit? And they said... We didn't even know there was such a thing. And he said, and into what were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. And he says, John indeed baptizes with repentance. And the people should believe in him. But those who come after Christ are baptized in power. This is what he's talking about. There's the baptism of repentance and a baptism of power. Every time people received that, they spoke in tongues. It just is. Anybody been to Firestarters when we've done this? Anybody? Yeah. You've been there? Matt's like, yeah, all in. All in. You were talking to a parent last week, and he goes, and they go, and then Cherry was telling me the story, and I said, "My man," and they said, "They go, what, so what's it like in the youth program?" Matt's like, "I'm going to paraphrase." Matt's like, "Well, we're all about the word." He's like, "And your kids are going to prophesy, and they're going to speak in tongues." I'm like, "My man," 
And then he goes in even further, and this really took you up a notch, Matt. Matt goes, but you know, it's not really about me. It's about me and my team. My team and I, we're, we're here serving the kids and serving the, the people. I said, he used the word team? I'm like, give me a high five. Matt loves high five, so let's give Matt a high five right now. High five, Matt. There you go. <laughs> Everywhere it took place, they spoke in tongues. I'm going to give you all the arguments. Well, they spoke in new t- in known tongues, Kevin. In the book of Acts, when Peter got up and they prophesied and they spoke in tongues, everybody understood what they're saying. The Christians that speak in tongues, nobody understands what they're saying. My question is, you did this research where? It's amazing how we form opinions having never done the research. There's two words in the Bible. Say it with me. Glossolalia and xenolalia. Xenolalia means they spoke in a known tongue. Glossolalia, which is the most common use in the New Testament, means they spoke in an unknown tongue. On on Pentecost, in the book of Acts, they spoke xenolalia. They spoke known languages that were known to the people in the room. But for the most part, the Christians spoke glossolalia in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They spoke glossolalia. They spoke in a tongue unknown. You have no idea what you're saying. You don't have any idea. You feel power. You're like, well, I don't know what I'm saying, but this is cool, man. You know? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Come on. It's yours. Why would you want to? Why would you not? Because just because you're weird and it seems weird to you, say it with me. Just because it's weird to me doesn't mean it's weird to Jesus. Huh? Just because, say this with me, just because the church makes it weird doesn't mean Jesus makes it weird. Right? The church makes this weird too. I get you. Right? It's a promise. These signs will follow those who believe. Really? They're going to cast out demons. They're going to lay hands on the sick. They're going to be recovered. This is the mark of the disciple. The healing of the sick. The driving out of devils in every sphere, in every context. And in my name they will drive out demons and they will speak with new tongues. Xenolalia and glossolalia. Some of you probably speak in a known language that speak in tongues and you don't even know it. There's a lady here. She, speaks in a, she spoke in a Google translator speaking in tongues. Did you do that? No, no? Yeah, she, she, she's Leilani. She speaks in a Google translator. What was the language? Did she tell you? No, you forgot. Yeah, she didn't remember. Alex speaks Telugu, right? What, maybe 8 million people in the world speak Telugu? Maybe 8? Anybody ever heard of the language Telugu? It's a small sect of Indian of, 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 uh, in India that speaks Telugu. Alex had somebody, uh, one of the pastors that came here to teach, Robert Slearden, who's the God's general guy. He was laying hands on Alex, and he was praying in Alex. He started praying, in him, praying over him in tongues. And Alex told, him, told me afterwards, he said, he kept using words in my language. And um, so we went up and told him. And what was he saying? I break it now. I break it now. In Jesus' name, I break it. I break it now. That's what he was praying over him. So Roberts is praying over him in tongues, and Alex is hearing him say, I break it. I break it now. In Telugu. Yeah. There's lots of stories outside of this context, but this is a story within our context that's real and that's alive. So true. Not all inherited Israel's power that was given to them. They all did. They, they were. They got out of the land. Some of them made it out. Some of, listen. Ready? This is what happened. This is what happened. 
This is Israel. So if we can see Israel as an example, we can see where Christians are going. You're going to fall somewhere on this list. Israel made it out of salvation, and they dropped in the wilderness. They got saved. They got out of their bondage, but they went no further. Then there are those who made it further. They made it into the promises, but did not possess fullness. That's level two. Then there's those who possessed fullness. What is God mapping out to you? There's going to be a whole lot of people, a lot of Christians that make it out of sin, but they don't even make it to promise. They drop dead, not because he wills them to, but because they will go no further. He couldn't bring them further. Their own mind, their own heart, their own attitude. It had nothing to do with the Lord. The Lord wanted to bring them in the promises, but they did not want to go. Then the second group went into promises and they went into candy land and they're like, wow, this is awesome. And they settled. They settled for less than what was rightfully theirs. Then you have, a, then you have mirrors of guys like Caleb who took it all. Joshua and Caleb possessed everything. So God gives us a mirror with the Old Testament people in three dimensions. And it's a mirror to the church and it's a mirror to the Christian. And what you need to decide is which kind of believer are you going to be? Are you the one that just gets out of the, just gets out of the, just gets out of sin and you spend all of your days going round the mountain? All of your days. That's what Israel did for 40 plus years. They just went round the mountain, round the mountain. 90% of the church, 90 plus percent of all believers spend their lives going round the mountain. They'll go no further than their denomination teaches them. They'll go no further than their doctrine teaches them. They'll go no further than their own personal comfort zones, attitudes, or belief systems will allow them to. Go no further. Then the other guys are like, all right, well, Jesus says he's going to part the water. I guess he's going to part the water. All right, let's go. And they just take it. They take his word by faith and they step into the experience. And they go into the promises and they begin to labor and they begin to contend for what God said was theirs. And they can claim, they contend and they labor and they inherit a measure of it. And they're so satisfied. Uh, say this, the measure of Jesus is so satisfying, but his fullness is so much greater. They got a measure of his kingdom and they're like, wow, this is so awesome because they were beggars. And now God gave them a measure and they're like, look what we got now. And they settled. But Caleb said, I will not settle. I want it all. He's the only one in the Bible that drove all the enemies out of his land. So, you know, God told him, drive all the enemies out, drive the enemies out of your soul. Christian drive the anxiety. The devil is in your emotions through wounds and traumas and lies and things that you believe. What Estella was telling you is the devil was driven out of my soul. He possessed me in the level of anxiety. Something would happen to me and I would become a slave to my anxiety. What she just did is took her promised land and she cast the parasite out of her land. You're not staying here. My, my emotions do not belong to you. You do not control my anxiety. The peace of God rules me. I'll find your right. I'll get rid of you and you're going to leave and you will not rule me anymore. And she stands and testifies that she's free. Is that real or is that not? It's real. This isn't psychological counseling. This is spirit and power. Big difference. So what are you going to be? You either got to come out, drop dead in the wilderness. Happy day. See you in the next life. Are you the one that's going into the water? Let's get it. Right? Are you the one that's going to, you're going to be like a Caleb and says, I'll fight for the rest of my life, but I will take that mountain and I will drive these enemies out of my land because the Lord told me I could. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what I've got to sacrifice. I don't care what I have. I don't care if I have to completely disassemble myself, which it will. You will have to completely. The Lord will have to completely disassemble you into a person that's complete. That's different than you are now. If you're going to have what he wants you to have. 
Are you willing to let you go? Are you willing to let go your lies? Are you willing to let go your emotions? Are you willing to let go your beliefs? Are you willing to let go your habits? Are you willing to deal with junk and deal with the things that are causing the negative compulsions in your life? Are you willing? That's really the question. Are you willing? Faith is belief to the point of action. We don't just believe, we act. And say, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what shame it costs me. David danced in his underwear. He didn't care. Everybody, his wife mocked him. That couldn't get any closer, how the king was undone today before the Lord. And he said, yep, it was before the Lord. And if, if my indignity brings him glory, then I shall be even more indignified than this. And will you be indignified in order that God could be glorified in your life? Will you? Price of revival is dignity. That's the cost. You want revival? It's dignity. And what does that look like? Revival in your marriage? It's dignity. Revival with your children? It's going to cost you your dignity. Revival in your, revival in your personal life? It's going to cost you dignity. You are going to have to lay down your pride and lay down your will. It's the way it is. All right, I'm over time. Not all can, but all will. Who said wow? You say wow? You say wow? Oh, right here. Everybody say this. Wow! Yeah, come on. Not all can, but all will. Get over yourself. Gospel of the kingdom is spiritual first and intellectual and transformational. So my challenge to you, if you want to be baptized, we have a sign-up over there. If you're interested in speaking in tongues and you want to do that, when we have fire starters, again, they'll probably, if I'm there and I come to the School of Prophetic, which I'm going to, but I'm not entirely leading it, and we have, we'd have maybe a day where we pray for those of you who don't speak in tongues but would like to. Let's get, the water's fine. It's fine. It isn't going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you. And we have prayer available as well. Who's waving at me? Why? We have prayer. Oh, well, if we're bold and we have some people, Matt, you can join that party because I know you like it. Um, we'll pray for you if you want to be praying in tongues, but we just may have to move it into the riot room while, when worship starts. So if you want prayer for that today, we'll, we'll go for it today. But let me pray for you and let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. May the Lord give you peace. And may he forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week.